Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for letting us in between your ears today. We know there's a lot of things you'd like to have in between your ears at any given time, but we're glad that you chose us for this particular moment. We know that um, you get us between your ears by listening to us through Apple Podcasts or the Overcast app on iOS. We're also available on Google Play and on Spotify. So if it's easier for you to listen to us on those platforms, well, go to. This is episode number 130 of the next track. We're going to try a, a little two-part uh, sort of thing here. This is the first part, and we'll air the second part perhaps next week or the week after. And uh, here to explain a little more about it is my podcast partner, Kirk McElhern. About a week ago, I was up in the bedroom and I wanted to listen to some music while I was reading a book. And there's always that problem when you have 45 million tracks to choose from is how do you choose? Now, I can look in my iCloud music library on my iPhone and pick an album. And I just didn't want to go through everything because I have a lot of classical music, and the way the artists are listed with the metadata in Apple Music is painful. You don't always find things under composer. If you look under album, it's confusing. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to pick one of those albums that I really like, that I've been listening to for decades, and put it on. And I was happy, and I picked that album. And that made me think, what if we were to limit ourselves to, say, just 100 albums in our collection and nothing else? We would have to choose not only the music that we like musically, but the music that has a certain sort of connection with us, the music that brings back memories, you know how it is. Sometimes you listen to a record, you remember where you were the first time you listened to it. So with that in mind, we've decided to each make a list of Desert Island discs. No, not 100, because that's too many, but 10 each. And we're going to do two episodes in which we each present our 10 Desert Island discs and discuss them. We flipped a virtual coin, and Doug said I could go first, so I'm going to start off. But first of all, let's can we just define what a desert island disc is? Now, first of all, when you say desert island, do you actually mean an island that's a desert, or do you mean a deserted island? So, for instance, I could go to Martha's Vineyard, and as long as no one was there, that's the place where, you know what I mean? Are we talking about a desert island or a deserted island? Well, I'm thinking the metaphor of the desert island where you have no possibility to go out and get anything else. And it could be a cabin in the woods. It could be a cave in the Yucatan. But that place where you just can't get anything. We're assuming that there is electricity. And the other constraint that we decided is that the albums we are choosing are limited to a single CD. Now, what this means is that there are some double LPs from the 70s or 60s that fit on a single CD. And Doug is just raising his eyebrows there because he's probably got a couple in his list. We decided that we needed some arbitrary condition. So single CD, but any kind of music at all. We assume there is electricity and a CD player. And you're there alone. You're not there with somebody else. So you can well, share duties and you can have more time to listen to music than, say, cook or vacuum or dust the sand out of the shack. Or Well, whatever. if you are with someone else and they have their own Desert Island disc list, oh. then you have twice as much music. Oh, that's, I don't want to get that. No, that's... No, they, because they then you have, might have musical yeah. incompatibility. Right. So what I thought is that it's really, really tough. If you ever tried this, to just limit yourself to 10 records, it's really, really tough. Because, again, you have to find the music that you really like, but the music that has a connection. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You've obviously been thinking about this a long time because you proposed this idea, and a half an hour later you said, <laughs> I've got my list, and it took me up until about five minutes ago of a, of a weeks of thinking about it to actually get my list together, and I'm still not impressed with it. But anyway, I don't want to bog well, everything down Well, as we'll it. see in my list, what I've tried to do is 
is cover a range of styles and genres and forms. But in addition, these are records that I really like. So the first record that I've picked is Tobias Hume, Musical Humors by Geordie Savelle. Tobias Hume was a 17th century English musician. And among other things, he wrote a fair amount of music for solo viola da gamba. I first heard this record in 1984. I had gone to live in France for a year, ended up staying 28 years. But a woman in the village who was a writer played this record for me one day on LP, and I was blown away by it. This music is just extraordinary. It's dance music, it's meditative music, and it just made me fall in love with the viola da gamba, which I later played for about a year. And I was able to play some of this music. It's not virtuoso music, but it's smooth, it's silky, it's it's very attractive music. So here, again, the music and the memory of what this type of music means to me. In case you don't know, for people who aren't familiar with the viola da gamba, as the name suggests... It is a stringed instrument, it is a bowed instrument. It's a bowed instrument, and they come in different sizes, from about the size of a violin to about the size of a large cello. The one I played was the large cello size. I think they call it a basso viola da gamba. But what's interesting about the viola da gamba is that it has frets, like a guitar or a lute, which meant that me, who cannot read music on a score without going note by note, and every good boy does fine for every note, I was very easily able to play this music, which is written in tablature. Tablature being indications of which string and which fret you play. Yeah, it's sort of uh, sort of like painting with paint by number. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because tablature is really for people who who can't read music and can't um, you know can't read the score, but they can certainly see where to put their fingers on the fretboard of a ukulele. And that's what music publishers used to do. They'd put out sheet music with the piano score, and then they'd have this tablature for ukulele, banjo, guitar, mandolin, any number of, uh, of musical instruments. There are whole ranges and genres of music that are scored in tablature. There, there is some organ tablature, there's flute tablature from the Baroque period and all that. And, you know, blues guitar, you can get a lot of music in tablature as well. Well, let me tell you something. I learned how to play, I learned banjo and mandolin fingerings because I think I've mentioned in the past we had the big book of the blues and it had tablatures for guitar, banjo, mandolin. And I figured out how to play banjo and mandolin because of the, the tablature, um, but also because I could read the notes too. So that was, that was helpful. Well, that was uh, cheating. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's not fair. You can read music. Uh, the other thing about the viola da gamba is my mother was an amateur cello player. My father also played classical guitar. And around the house, we used to try to collect pictures of st unusual stringed instruments because of this hobby that they had. And one of the pictures we had up on the wall was this old woodcut of a person playing a viola da gamba. We had one of a guy playing a guitaro also. But I'll say one thing. Even, I've never really heard the viola da gamba, but it certainly is a cool-looking instrument. It is. It's got a beautiful sound, and, and it's it's very resonant. You know, when you hear it on a record, it's one thing, but when you're playing it in a room, it's just this music is just spreading out. It's really beautiful. Funny how you don't see a lot of fretted bowed instruments. Well, that's the only one that, that's left. There was There's an instrument called the baritone, B-A-R-O-Y-T-O-N, and... Haydn wrote like 150 sonatas for the baritone because some Prince Esterhazy or something played that instrument. If you look it up on your favorite streaming service, it's very sort of pretty classical music. It's nothing virtuoso because the Prince wasn't that good. But that's the only fretted stringed instrument I can think of other than guitar and lute where there is a, a large repertoire. 
My second choice, and, and I've put this list together chronologically from when the music was composed. My second choice, I could not make a list like this without one record by Bach. He is as close to God as you can get among all the composers. But how do you choose? I just mentioned in our last episode, my next track was this 220 CD box set of all of Bach's works. How do you choose? Do you take the highlights from the St. Matthew Passion, because the St. Matthew Passion is nearly three hours? Do you take three of the partitas or three of the cello suites? Because, you know, these groups of works are long. So what I've decided is the Goldberg Variations, which to me encapsulates pretty much everything that Bach wrote in style, in variety, in complexity, and all that. There are countless recordings of the Goldberg Variations, and you could go for Glenn Gould in 55 or 81, or you could go for someone on the harpsichord. But what I've selected is the one recorded by Andres Schiff, maybe about 10 years ago, because I think of all the pianist playing the Goldberg Variations today, he's the most creative. I think most of our listeners know that I'm not as steeped in the classical music repertoire as you are, but I have, a, I think, a, a, a decent, broad background in classical music, and I do particularly like Bach. And you did recommend that I listen to the Glenn Gould uh, Goldberg Variations, 55 and 81, and I have listened to them, and I, I've enjoyed listening to them and comparing the younger Gould to the mature Gould and the way he found, you know, nuance in these re relatively small little pieces. Right. Um, it was a lot of fun uh, to to give it a listen, to give that kind of critical listen. I had to listen to them in small bunches. I couldn't listen to the one and then all of the next one. I had to go in batches. But it was something that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to put that on my Desert Island disc list because Gould was idiosyncratic. I love the way he played Bach. I love the way he played Beethoven as well. But he was idiosyncratic. And, and I prefer Schiff, who's more in the range of classic, but inventive in style. I couldn't make a list like this without something by Franz Schubert, one of my other favorite composers, who was just one rung down the ladder from Bach as being close to God. Again, how do you choose his Death in the Maiden String Quartet, Winter Heiss, his leader cycle, which is by far one of my favorite works in the world. I opted for his last piano sonata, number 21, D960. And again, everyone's played this, but with classical music, it's interesting. Sometimes classical music collectors and fans talk about being imprinted by a specific work. That's the first version of a work you've heard, and you tend to compare all the others to that. And the first one that I got, and this is one of the earliest CDs I bought, was by, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, it was by Maria João Piresh. I think she's a Portuguese pianist. It was on Erato, and it's still available. I just love the way she does it in comparison with Alfred Brendel and all the other great Schubertians. This record just holds a place for me. At, at It imprinted this sonata on me. This was back when I had a half a dozen CDs. And you know, when you don't have much to listen to, you listen to them a lot. Well, you're going to be listening to this one a lot then if you're on the Desert Island. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this is so the Desert Island is kind of like those first years with a CD player, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think that's part of what this experiment is about is to to get back to that mindset of, well, if you only have a certain number of recordings then you better make sure they're good ones. I mean, I, it's it's funny how we were talking about this recently, um, how we how budget constraints really, you know, cons constrained our, our music uh purchasing, and you had to make decisions about what you were going to have, and not unlike this mental exercise. So next, we get back up into the mid-20th century. I've skipped a lot there. There has to be a jazz record on this list, and 
if there's if there's only one jazz record in the world, which one is it? Well, it's going to be uh, Miles, right? Exactly, kind of blue. Yep. As, as much as kind of blue has almost become a cliche because it's the jazz record that everyone who has at least one jazz record owns. There's no denying that this is really one of the greatest jazz records ever. This is the only jazz record on my list. I could have chosen Bill Evans or Brad Meldow or even Coltrane. But, you know, out of 10 records, I had to fit into certain styles that I wanted to have. That covers a lot of things, too. And it, I, I think, like a lot of the things on my list, you can listen to that record a lot and still yes. find new things. Uh, yeah. that's one of the, that's one of the things that I made a consideration of too, is that yes, it may be one of the most popular jazz albums ever, and it may be, you know, overdone and overanalyzed, but it's still something that you can listen to. It is. So again, with things that just have to be on the list, there's gotta be a Grateful Dead record. And with all the Grateful Dead records I have, it's really hard to choose and it's gotta be a single CD. And it came down to two. Live Dead, which was early March 1969, which has what I would call the Ur Dark Star, the, the quintessential Dark Star from which all other Dark Stars are sprouted and compared to. But I don't so much like the St. Stephen and the Eleven that come after Dark Star. And it's as much as I would miss not having a Dark Star, it's I want a full record. So American Beauty, which is if anything, one of the most poppy Grateful Dead records, but it has my favorite, one of my favorite, all-time favorite songs of any kind of music, which is Ripple. You know, if I had to pick a Grateful Dead album, I would have a lot of trouble choosing from among American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, and the Skull and Roses live album. Um, they were all the, the first albums I ever heard by the Grateful Dead before I ever thought much about them. Um, the thing about picking a live Grateful Dead album, though, is that they're not usually limited to one cd they are you know usually multi-disc things right yeah most live dead recordings are three discs or some of them are two and some of them are even four but you know if, if there's only one i want it to be songs i can sing along to right if we're going to take this desert island thing seriously we've got to have music for for different occasions and you don't always want to hear you know cerebral classical music sometimes you want fire out peace cool psychedelic groovy music to sing along to around the uh, the old campfire there on the desert island well you'll see there's not a lot of songs in my list there's only on one other record which is really songs next again uh, another rung down but still close to god brian eno how do you choose brian eno because there's just so much from his song records to his ambient music but then i had another conundrum because harold budd is just about the same level as Brian Eno. <laughs> but fortunately, you can get two, two mints in one. Two minimalists in one. The Harold Budd, Brian Eno, Ambient 2, The Plateau of Mirror. First record I ever heard by Harold Budd. So it's Budd playing piano and Eno doing processing. There's some singing on a couple of the tracks that come over. This is just hauntingly beautiful music. It gives me two composers with one choice. I do kind of regret not having an Eno album alone, but this one certainly makes up for it. I also picked a Brian Eno album, but uh, something a little more um, accessible, and I'll talk about it in the episode we do on on my picks. Um, I, you know, you said earlier that you know the Miles album was was your jazz pick, but you know, I I kind of tend to think of Harold Budd as a as a jazz guy. No, I, it, Harold Budd's piano is it, it's often called new age, which I don't think is correct. I don't think it veers into jazz as much. 
Um, I'd call it almost minimalist, but it doesn't have the repetition of Steve Reich and Philip Glass. Jazz, no. I mean, some of his stuff does sound jazzy, some of his later music, but this one doesn't. This one is really, I mean, it really fits in ambient. It was the second ambient record in, you know, series after Music for Airports. Next up is minimalism, because I love minimalism. And this was actually quite easy. If I wanted a minimalist record, it's the 1978 ECM recording of Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich. There have been many recordings of this work, but this one is by far the best. This is the work that has these pulses, and, and it's about 50 minutes long, and, and it's got these different sections and these transitions from one to another, and these just wonderful changes in this rhythm and, and everything. And it's the kind of thing that you'll use on the desert island when you're chopping open coconuts or something. <laughs> now, that's presuming that you're on a tropical desert island. Yes. Well, you could be slicing open um, fish or something if you're Clams. in the Arctic. Clams. See, I'm thinking I'm off. A, I'm an island off here, off Boston Harbor here on a deserted island. There's plenty right. of little rocks Clams. I could be marooned on. And, yeah. Yeah, clams, quahogs, oysters, lobster, whatever. Um, that's an interesting pick to want to have with you on a desert island, I think. Well, I love Steve Rice music. There's a connection between that music and myself that is really indelible. And yeah. I've been listening to this record for 40 years since it came out. Right. And again, I tried to make my list something to cover these styles and genres of music that touch me the most. Yeah, I just think, um, the, listen, have the, what's required to listen to a Steve Reich composition is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in your brain while you're listening to one of these pieces. And I'm not sure that listening to it on a desert island would either drive me crazy or or compel me to swim to my own rescue. Yeah, but it sort of it sort of starts out softly and builds and then you go through the whole thing and then it fades out again and it, and it's like you're entering a world for about an hour and then leaving that world. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You've got to leave the world. <laughs> it's, yes. It's the sort yes. of thing you start expecting your other albums to sound like that and that's when you would have to worry. So, next on the list is the only other record which is really a song record and if you think about it, you know who I really like in terms of music, and you're going to guess who this is. All right, let me guess. Is it The Clash, London Calling? No, it's interesting. Uh, okay, see, now I know who it is. No, that's interesting, because I actually, that was in my first iteration of the list until I realized that I had left out something by this artist, and The Clash got bumped by Bob Dylan. Tough assignment. But the idea of having London Calling as that, like, energetic music was really compelling, but sorry, he lost. Blood on the tracks, there is... Probably no better Bob Dylan album that is quintessential Bob Dylan. Just a reminder, I believe it's today that when this when we release this episode that the new bootleg series about Blood on the Tracks comes out with all the alternate takes. I've heard some of the stuff and it's really fascinating. It's called More Blood, More Tracks. <laughs> I know, yeah. I love I love that <laughs> title. Um, there are two Dylan albums that I, I like to keep. One of them is Highway 61 Revisited and the other one is this one, Blood on the Tracks. I think most people would agree that this is the, this is the most Dylan of Dylan. This is archetypical Dylan. Yeah. This album has Tangled Up in Blue on it, Shelter from the Storm, yeah. Simple Twist of Fate, Idiot Wind, um, it is, I think, the quintessential Dylan sound. So next is a Derudi column record. Again, one of my favorite performers. And I chose the second Derudi column album, LC. This is an album that Vinnie Riley made in about four hours. He just sort of took a recorder and sat and played some guitar melodies and gave the tapes to Martin Hannett, who put it together. Brian Eno has said several times that this is his favorite record of all time. It, it's a beautiful record. It's just Vinnie's amazing guitar work that's unforgettable. And... 
I just wouldn't want to be without one Darudi column record. That's yeah. You know, I I had never paid much attention to the Darudi column until you started talking about them, uh, about him, and I never. I, I always thought it was really strange that they, he was part of that scene in Manchester because he's so different from pretty much all the other stuff. I mean, you're talking, you know, it's dance music, and then there's Vinnie Riley uh, doing something just totally different, and it's really funny how uh, how how he became a, a, a really big part of that scene. Well, he was more than a part of that scene. He was the first artist that Tony Wilson signed to Factory Records. So he was really the foundation of Factory Records. And, you know, you're thinking about this post-punk period. It was 1979, so you'd had the Clash and the Sex Pistols and all that, and things were winding down. The Clash either had or was about to release London Calling. And it was a sort of it was a way of saying music is more than this. It can't just be reduced to that. And if you look at what Factory Records did over the years, you know, they had Joy Division, they had later New Order, but they also had things like Section 25 and Crispy Ambulance, which were really more experimental types of music. But but Vinny's guitar playing is just so magical that you just can't not be attracted to it if you appreciate the guitar. Yeah, I, I love all his stuff. Uh, it's It's not always in my top 20, but... Uh, he's he's just great to listen to. Yeah, he's he's one of those artists I've been listening to for 40 years, and, you know, it's unforgettable. So that's up to number 10 now is Morton Feldman Piano and String Quartet. Morton Feldman's later works are one, two, four, or six hours long, and I had to limit it to one CD. This is the version by the Kronos Quartet and Aki Takahashi on piano. Piano and String Quartet is one of these later Feldman works where there's these little bits of music and there's a bit of music, the quartet and a bit of music with the piano and then a bit with the quartet and piano. And it's, and it's not repetition like minimalism, like Steve Reich or Philip Glass, but it's, it's sort of fractal music that moves slowly. And I love these later works. It's very hard to choose because there's one called trio, which is about an hour and a half long. So that's longer than a CD. There are some piano-only works, which are really great, like um, Triadic Memories. But again, that's two CDs. So this is, I think, this is actually a compromise to have a Morton Feldman record. It's not my favorite Feldman piece, but it is the compromise that fits the constraint of a single CD. Earlier, I had said that this experiment was somewhat like our budgetary constraints on our music consumption when we were kids, and that we were kind of gambling on any music that we bought back then because... You know, you had to like what you, what you were going to buy. But now this is sort of the inverse of that, where you have to pick things that you know you like, but that you don't want to burn on. You know, I don't want to hear the Rolling Stones 12 by 5 in perpetuity. Well, this is a record I can listen to a lot. And, and I have a lot of Feldman recordings and a lot of recordings of particular works. I have four or five of this. I'm, I'm a bit of a Feldman fanatic. Fortunately, there's not too many recordings of Feldman's works, so it doesn't get too expensive. But this is one of those you can listen to over and over. And it's the kind of music that I, I'm in my office right now. This is where I work. And if I've got music on and I go to make tea, I pause the music because I don't want, I don't want to miss anything, right? But this is the kind of thing where I can leave the room and come back and leave it on and feel that it's a musical environment rather than a piece of music that I have to hear all of. So is this desert island like, what, 12 feet by 12 feet? So if if it's really small, you wouldn't... You wouldn't have to ever turn the music off while you were, you know, cutting coconuts or doing your clam. Well, there's the or... thing about uh, see one of the great things about music is is you appreciate it more when you've been in silence for a while. So you're going to have a lot of silence. You're going to hear the 
the lapping of the waves on the shore. You're going to hear the rustle of the wind through the palm leaves and all that. And you'll put on music when you want to take that escape. The idea wouldn't be to have music all the time. I think, actually, this would be kind of the red pill that you take to go down the rabbit hole every (laughs) now and then to just get a break from the tedium of the desert island. Well, that's what I was wondering. It's like, how long would it be before you finally grew tired of these 10 albums and just chucked them all (laughs) into the lagoon, you know? I I could imagine that after a year, uh, you would get to the point where you would sort of dole them out and only use them in little doses because you don't want them to be played out. You don't want to hear them too much. Maybe if you made a list of another 10 albums, put it in a bottle, and then maybe someone would airlift you 10 (laughs) new albums. Yeah. No. 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 Okay, so that's my list. We're not going to do any next track selections for this episode or the next because you've got 10 next track selections in this episode. I'll try to find those Apple Music previews that I put in the show notes. You know, every time you go to the show notes, you see those Apple Music previews, right? You go to the show notes, right? You check our show notes, thenexttrack.com. And so these previews allow you to listen to, I believe, 30 seconds of the tracks if you're not an Apple Music member. And if you sign in, you can listen to the entire thing on the web on thenexttrack.com in our great show notes. Mm. Now, we are hoping to schedule a fabulous guest for next week's episode, so my Desert Island Top 10 will be presented the week following. Okay? This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.